All right, thanks for coming here. All right. Well, if you've got your Bibles today, we're going to be in the book of Romans in chapter 2. So the first verse in our text that we're going to look at today is one of the most commonly misapplied verses in our culture. Romans 2 verse 1 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you... The judge practiced the very same things. Now, when this verse is, you know, used alone in our culture, what's, what's actually meant by this is somebody will use this against us and say, well, how dare you try to say what I'm doing is wrong? None of us are perfect. You screw things up too, so just go ahead and shut up and sit down. That's, that's the way that's meant in our, in our culture. Uh, that, as we see, that's becoming and is going to continue to become more prevalent in our culture, but it's not just going to be, as we see a lot of the, the moral decay that's, you know, there's nothing new under the sun that goes on, we know, but um, as our culture denies objective, moral, and transcendent truths, uh, it's not just going to be the, the bad sinner that we, that we looked at in Romans 1 a while ago. Uh, it's going to be our employers, it's going to be our lawmakers. Um, all of this, all of these cultural topics, whether they be abortion, um, the LBGTQ, uh, the new critical race theory that you guys have probably heard about, all of those things, they, they can be kind of like cultural whack-a-mole, right? You can go hit, you can hit a topic um, with its merits, but the, 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 the true way to address this is a biblical understanding of what is the nature of mankind, which is what we're going to look at. In the, the first three chapters of Romans tells us this is what the nature of man is. What is the nature of God and what is the nature of the problem humanity faces? When we have that, that is the gospel. The gospel is what Christ has done for us, um, completely unmerited, in fact, in spite of ourselves. That is the answer to all of the ills of this world. So let's pray and then we'll get into God's word. Lord, we just thank you for... Uh, the beauty of your creation that surrounds us, Lord, the sun that comes up every morning, Lord, the seasons as they go through that you promise will be there, uh, that we would just find strength and we'd find peace in those, Lord. Um, as we go through your word, God, that we ask that it would take us as we go through the rest of our week um, and all the encounters we have, Lord, we would have courage, we'd have compassion, we would have patience um, for the lost, uh, to be able to speak the truth and to speak the truth in love, Lord God. We just ask that you would take your word, uh, get me out of the way, God, and my, uh, my thoughts and that your word would penetrate the heart of your children um, through your Holy Spirit, God. We just love you, we praise you, and ask you to bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So what, what really is meant by this verse, um, Romans 2, chapter 1? It says, you therefore have no excuse. So we got to look at the, anytime you see a therefore, you have to wonder what is the therefore, therefore. And it's almost always what it's talking about is a previous statement. And it's saying, okay, we've discussed this big truth 
Now here's why it matters. And the big truth that Paul just finished in Romans chapter 1 um, was that all humanity, as it says in verse 32, it says that although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do, do such things, and that's this long list of evils that they have in there, deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And then the, right after that, verse 2, verse 1 says, You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. Um, in order to understand this properly, we have to look at the whole context, especially of the first three chapters of Romans, is he's trying to point out the bad news of humanity um, that is actually summed up in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, so he's trying to show us here that our true condition of a fallen humanity is, should cause us to fall down on our faces in worship of a holy, loving God that saved us. So you read those verses in uh, Romans chapter 1 right before there. We'll, just, we'll look at it real quick here. Romans 29. Uh, it says, They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. So that long list, when we, hear, when we read that, most of us are probably kind of, you know, wiping our brows saying, those are pretty bad people. I'm glad that's not me. What Paul goes on to show us in the first three, verse, or three, first three chapters of Romans, though, is that... Um, that without the finished work of Christ on the cross on our behalf, this is exactly who we are. This is, this is the nature of fallen man. Um, so this is what Paul means when he says that in passing judgment on another, we condemn ourselves. Paul is not telling us not to call sin what it is. That's, that's what those using that verse out of context mean, is you don't tell me what's right and what's wrong. My right is my right and my wrong is my wrong, denying Transcendent, transcendent truths. What he's trying to show us um, is that in our condition, we need to see our condition so that we don't become the self-appointed righteousness police on the rest of humanity. Um, Romans 2, verses 1 through 5, he says, you therefore, we've looked at one here, it says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on another. You are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So, Paul reminds us here, in the NIV, he uses the words mere human. Some of them says, oh man. Um, he's trying to remind us that we are not God. <laughs> Only God and God alone will judge the heart of man. We, we, we see actions, and we know they're contrary to God's truth, but God and God alone judges the heart. Now, I think 
we all have a propensity, and it's, and it's kind of natural for us, to kind of see the sin that we have and kind of excuse it um, sometimes. Or I know for me, you know, things that we struggle with, they, they really shine out in other people. Um, the st- our, our little vices that we have, we see them, and we know they're there, but we kind of push them down, but we see them in other people, and we can be very critical of point, trying to help point them out in others. Um, I think there's this condition is, is very easily seen in, uh, the, in King David. So you'll remember the story of King David, uh, second, second king of, of, of Israel, and he was called a man after God's own heart. But this is, this is what David did. So he was a mighty king, and he sent his, he sent his people, off, his men off to war. Well, he stayed at the palace one night, and he walked out on the balcony, and he looks down, and he sees Bathsheba bathing down there. And he's filled with lust for her. So he tells these guys, he says, hey, go get that woman and bring her up to me. So they do. They bring her up, and, and uh, he has relations with her. She becomes pregnant. Uh, you know, he's committed adultery. So he's got to cover this up somehow, right? Because, I mean, he doesn't want all this to be found out. So he says, I know what I'll do. <clears throat> her husband, Uriah, I'm going to bring him back from the battle, and I'm going to say, okay, you go you know, go, go spend some time with your wife, and then, you know, he'll, he'll think the kid's his. Well, Uriah comes back, but he won't do that. He says, no, he says, my, my fellow countrymen are out fighting. I will, I will not uh, do that. So David then resorts to murder, and he tells his, his, uh, his captain, he says, all right, you guys, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get into a really fierce battle, put Uriah in the front, and everybody back off so make sure he's killed. And, and that's exactly what happens. Uriah's killed. Um, now this is, remember, this is a man after God's own heart. So he does all this, and, and he hasn't recognized his, his sin yet. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, um, the, the prophet Nathan confronts him, and this is, what it, this is what it says. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I appointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, And as if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up against, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. 
for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David then said to Nathan, this is what he said, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. David's response should be our response when we see our natural condition in Romans, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, a lot of people would see this and they'd say, well, yeah, he sure did. Adultery, murder, I mean, this was this pretty bad stuff. Of course he deserves, he deserves punishment. Um, but you know, I got my little vices, sure, but they're, they're not that bad. Well, let's look in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus discusses this. Um, in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus puts the standard where it is, needs to be, standard is perfection. It says, Jesus says in Romans five, or Matthew 5.21, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. With that standard, I would say everybody's, everybody's a murderer. And then in 27 and 28, he discusses adultery. He says, you have heard it said, you, was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So when we see the standards at the proper place, that's when we see the, that we cannot ever on our own merit God's favor. That's why we need the imputed righteousness of Christ. Um, so no matter whether we're the bad sinner, which probably nobody in here is the bad sinner of Romans chapter 1, but there's, we've probably all been good sinners or religious sinners, but we're all sinners nonetheless. Um, verse 4 that we just read, it says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So, God's kindness and his forbearance is not meant to be used as a license to live outside of his will. It's meant to lead us to repentance. But I think that a lot of people have this perception. It's like, well, I did something bad. Lightning didn't come and strike me down, so God must not care. Right? That's kind of the, the, the theory. It's like, well, I've, I've got away with some of these things. And looks around and says, well, I, I'm still standing. I'm still upright. and I'm still breathing. God didn't, God didn't strike me down. He must not really care. And I think I like what uh, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, talks about this. We, as a culture, um, have, have a wrong view of sin and of God's view of sin. And this is what he says. He says, they, and this is referring to modern men and women, tend to dismiss a bad conscience in themselves as in others as an unhealthy psychological freak, a sign of disease and mental aberration, rather than an index of moral reality. For modern men and women are convinced that despite all their little sins, drinking, gambling, reckless driving, sexual laxity, black and white lies, sharp practice and trading, dirty reading and what have you, they are at heart thoroughly good folks. We've heard that before, haven't we? They're at, we're, we're all good people. Then, as pagans do, and modern man's heart is pagan, make no mistake about that, they imagine God as a magnified image of themselves and assume that God shares his own complacency about himself. 
The thought of themselves as creatures fallen from God's image, rebels against God's rule, guilty and unclean in God's sight, fit only for God's condemnation, never enters their heads. But God is not complacent or soft when it comes to the judgment of sin. He is patient and long-suffering, and I praise him that he is, and we all praise him that he is, that we don't actually, you know, get what we deserve. Um, but God will judge sin someday, uh, and he takes it very seriously. All we have to do to see the seriousness of sin is look at the agony that Christ went through on the cross to pay that sin debt that we owed. Um, continuing on in, in verse 6, Romans chapter 2. It says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistent in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. So this is not talking about us trying to earn God's favor uh, or our salvation by our good deeds. That would be contrary to so much of the rest of Scripture. Now, if we just take small little, you know, couple, three verses and we try to use those alone to make an entire doctrine on, we're probably going to go south somewhere. So we have to take this. If this alone was used, you could see that it might say, well, it says that those who do good, so if we do good works, we're going to get all this. Um, but that's so contrary to the rest of Scripture. The best interpretation of Scripture is other Scripture. Um, now, at the final judgment, works will be brought up. They will be brought up for the believer and for the non-believer, but they'll be brought up in different ways. So as believers, those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we will give an account of our works, but non-believers will be judged according to their works. So we will give an account for our works. The non-believers will be judged according to their works. So why is that? It is, it is works that require that are required to satisfy the wrath of God. The, the, it, is, it is works that, that has to satisfy his perfection, his judicial judgment. But as believers, those works that he looks at when he looks at us are the works of Christ on the cross finished. The non-believer who has rejected Christ, he doesn't have those works imputed to him, so he's relying on his own. And as we've seen, no human will ever, ever meet the mark of that. Um, now works, these works are, they do come as a natural consequence. And I, one of the ways I like to understand this is, uh, is kind of looking at a tree, right? So do we try to take our works and make a root? That, that would be, if you look at the root as, the, as our relationship with Christ, our connection to him, and then the fruit is the apple. Can you ever make an apple and then make a tree? Take an apple and make a tree out of it? No. You have to have the tree with the root in order for the apple to be made. That root in Christ has to be there in order for the fruit to be born. So good fruit is a result of salvation, but it is not, it's not our good works that make that, establish that root. That root is established through faith, by grace, through faith, it says in God's word. Um, Romans chapter 2, continuing on in verses 12 through 16, it says, 
all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when, God's ju- when God judges people's, se- people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So the word law that's used throughout these verses is not necessarily referring to Sometimes it is to the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, those, those, the, the law that was given, the rules. But there is, because we are all image bearers, regardless of race, regardless of background, we are all image bearers. There is a law that is, that is written into our hearts, um, that general revelation that God gives, that we inherently know that there are some things that are wrong and there are some things that are right. It says in verse 15, it is the law that is written on their hearts. So regardless of if someone has actually heard the Ten Commandments, now being raised in America, we've all, we've all seen the Ten Commandments written there. We've, we've been around them whether we grew up in a church or not uh, normally. And people that haven't seen that, there's still a law that's written on their heart. People intuitively know, they may not follow it, but they intuitively know that they shouldn't steal, that they should tell the truth. They know that they should love other people, that they should show compassion. What we should not take away from these verses, though, is that those who haven't heard the gospel don't need to worry, because as long as they don't violate their conscience, they're going to be fine. Um, Once again, this doesn't align with the rest of Scripture. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Um, And that's one one of those hard things to wrestle with when we come into Christianity of, well, what about the... What about the uh, tribal person in the middle of the South American jungle, right, that's never heard Christ, that never heard the gospel preached? How could God judge him? Well, God is fair, and God will judge. Um, he, God and God alone knows who, who he will save and who will reject him. Um, and he works in strange ways of doing this, but it's always through the cross of Christ that people come to the only way that people will come to God. Now, I had heard a story one time about uh, a missionary that went down to some foreign country where nobody spoke English, and and he was getting ready to preach a sermon, um, you know, evangelical sermon, giving the gospel, and he had a translator with him, but that translator got so, so, so sick that they couldn't even speak. They were just, I mean, completely laid up, and he spoke English. All of these tribal people didn't speak English. He had no interpretation for them, but he went ahead and he proclaimed the gospel message in English to people that didn't understand the language he was speaking in. And in the back, one of the, the medicine men or somebody in one of those tribes actually carved a wooden cross while he was listening to this. So God's, 
God is our creator. God's ways are much higher than our ways. Um, God, without a language barrier, got through to that person's heart. So to, to kind of wrap up here today, um, I want to, there, there's nothing more destructive, as we've seen in verse 1, applied improperly, right? And that's, that's people's view generally of, of us in Christianity today is those self-righteous people, you know, self-righteous, judgmental people, they think they're better than I am. And there's nothing more destructive to the spread of the gospel than a self-righteous, judgmental spirit. And people, people know when that's present. People can sense that pretty immediately. We had um, another story. My wife and I were in a, in a church one time, a very legalistic church, and, you know, where women don't wear jeans and that kind of stuff. And um, they were, people were getting up and, and talking and, and telling what God's done for them and stuff. And my wife, we had just come, come through our, uh, she was pulling a horse trailer down by Blackfoot, and there was a bird's nest in the truck, and this bird's nest caught on fire, burned the truck out, gutted the whole thing. Um, at the time, my, my children were pretty little. She pulled over, got all the horses out. There was a barn right there, uh, I mean, stables right there to put the horses in. Took the kids out. My youngest was probably six or eight months old at the time, pretty, pretty young, not, not walking yet. But she was able to get him out of the truck and everything. And then as that truck burned, the fire department was late getting there. And uh, it burned the truck. And my wife took a picture of the car seat. And the car seat that he was in was a little tiny ball of molten plastic and metal. That's how hot that fire was. And that really touched her heart. And, and she glorified God for all of the things that were aligning to save there. So anyway, so she was, I mean, for a long time, she was very, very touched by this. And she wanted to share how good God is, and so she got up, and, and, she, and she gave that uh, kind of testimony of God's goodness, and uh, she, she ended with Romans 8.28, um, you know, God will work all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, and uh, she didn't know, she's standing there and didn't know what else to say, and she'd been down visiting her, her half-sister in Texas the week before, and the, the preacher was at that, that church was always, everything after he would say, he would say, can I get an amen? And so she didn't know what to say. She's standing up there and she says, can I get an amen? And everybody's there's just kind of silence back there and I'm in the back. I said, amen? And, you know, so afterwards, though, the, uh, as people would come up, there was, there was really kind of two responses. One, you could see the liberation of this, of this love of, of, of God and these people feeling so uh, connected with her. But then there was also this very, very judgmental, how dare you uh, come in here in a pair of jeans, you know, the very legalistic, that, that self-righteous judgmentalism that, that the world sees all of Christianity is having. Now, if, if you would have gone up and talked to these people that you could, I mean, you could, and you'd, you'd have to ask my wife, I'm not exactly Mr. Sensitive when it comes to, like, people's emotions, <laughs> And uh, I could even feel it, so it had to be, it had to be pretty thick. And uh, if I would have gone up and talked to him, I'm sure I would have got a smile and a "How are you doing?" But that that sense of self righteousness was so thick that there was no way it was being hit. People can see when we think we are better than them. Um, now, this doesn't mean that we don't stand for God's truth. What what God's word calls sin is sin. That, that is, that is a, a, objective truth. 
Um, but we have, to, we have to show the truth of God's word. We have to have truth, but we have to have that truth in love. And these are really hard conversations we have with people, and we have to have those. The only way to have that in love and to not have that self-righteous, because that, that, that'll creep in on all of us, that, you know, because we look at ourselves and we're, when we start comparing ourselves to, to other people, that standard, we, that's when you get that self-righteousness. When you compare yourself to the standard of perfection, that self-righteousness is gone because you fall on your face in awe of our God. Um, now, the, uh, when God's word points out this, the first, chap- first three chapters of Romans is the, is the sinfulness, the fallenness of humanity of our natural condition. The goal of this, this is, this is so contrary to our pop culture where we get the, uh, you know, think positive thoughts. You're, a, you're in charge of your destiny. You, you know, I mean, they're, we're, our modern culture essentially puts self in the place of God. Um, so when we hear these things and, and we preach through these hard passages that all are fallen short of the glory of God, the envy, the murder, the deceit, that that's, that's our natural condition. The goal of that is not to cause us to become depressed or um, self-medicate somehow. The goal of that is to force us to realize our need of a Savior so that we can run to him and let him become the new creation. Um, so in order to have to really have the love that we have to, to have these conversations, we have to understand our condition, our human condition, prior to the Holy Spirit and realize that but by the grace of God, we too would still be lost in our sin and no better than the, the vilest of sinners out there. Um, and it's only, only when we see this true condition of, hu- of our humanity and the overwhelming grace that God extends to us that we can speak the truth in love. Um, that's, that's the point of these verses that, that can be culturally so, uh, not popular, (laughs) I should say. Um, and people, people need to know this because only when you see the bad news does the good news become so, so good. So let's pray. Lord God, we just, uh, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the, uh, the loving kindness that although we are